Thanks for joining us for Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. We are a fellowship committed to knowing community as God's family and sharing the food from our table with others. Every member of Christ's family should be well-nourished from God's Word, and in that Word we find all we need to live good and God-honoring lives. To contact us, please call us at 208-331-4096. And now here for a brief introduction is our speaker, Joel Van Hoogen. We're in our last message in a short series on the church's worship. We're considering from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, a question. The question is, what attribute of God initiates us in acts of true worship? The angels before the throne of God call out in reverential awe to the holiness of God. Isaiah tells us such in Isaiah chapter 6. And yet they are not driven from the throne of God's presence at the revelation of His holiness but they remain before him and worship there. Could it be that God's holiness is the beginning point of our worship? Let's find out. They are cleansed creatures who abide in the throne room of God. They themselves abide before him in a state of holiness, and they worship at the expression of God's holiness. And though God's holiness is so concentratedly powerful that it seems to overwhelm them so that they cover their eyes with two wings and they cover their feet with two wings and they cannot stand still but fly about constantly, incessantly with two wings and they cannot cease to speak of His holiness. Yet, it is not so overwhelming that it drives them from the presence of God. Instead, they untiringly glorify God in the revelation of His holiness. Their response is, holy, holy, holy. But you'll notice, if you read the passage, that that's not Isaiah's response. Isaiah doesn't issue forward the same cry that they issue for. His cry is not a cry of adoration, of wonder, even of awe. It's a cry of consternation. And of overwhelming concern. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. His words are actually, in a sense, not addressed to God, but at God. It's much like the words of Peter when he fell at the feet of the Lord Jesus and said to the Lord Jesus, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Holiness all by itself leaves us uncomfortable, and unmasked as lacking and utterly lacking in our encounter before God. It leaves us covering our faces. It leaves us fainting as though we are dead. It it leaves us with our bodies sunk into the ground, trying to become one with the soil. The holiness all by itself revealed in God would drive us down or drive us away from Him as we become aware of His utter perfections and our complete imperfections and sin. I don't think it would be the thing that would initiate our worship. Neither would the justice of God or the wrath of God and justice revealed against our sins. The awareness of His judgment against our sin will not bring us to worship. If all that we have before us is the justice of God, the wrath of God against our imperfect sinful selves, if that's all we have and that's all we have to expect, the unveiling of, from a holy God, His absolute perfect justice 
and his intense wrath against sin, if that's all we have to consider it and all we have to hope for and look to, we will respond, I think, like Satan would respond, condemned with nothing left for ourselves but a season of rebellion before God would extend his final blow of justice. We'd have no words of worship to give to God. Instead, in his presence, we would only cry out possibly our defiance. Before, in a sense, the sword of his justice fell upon us. With the inevitability of God's just wrath against our sins, if that is all that we have to look forward to, then we would or may just pour ourselves out into our own selfish rule until the day of that final judgment, until we're brought to the end. And then on that day, most likely, we would not go quietly before our execution, but we might reasonably cry out the words that you find in Revelation chapter 6. Turn there, Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. You read the passage, you might think how unreasonable these individuals are, but these individuals, on this occasion, see nothing but God's judgment. And God's judgment. They have refused the extended hand of God's peace. And God extending out His hand to reconcile them. And before just wrath, and just before judgment alone, On the great day of his judgment, we read this. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, it's not just the kings, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, that's everyone, hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Those are not words of adoration. That is not an expression of worship. Holiness does not initiate our worship, nor does God's just wrath against sin initiate our worship. Let me say to you that we may worship God for His holiness, We may delight and worship God for His justice, even His wrath against sin. But these things will not be the attributes of God that initiate our worship, that give rise or begin our acts of worship before God, our ascribing to and adoring His worthiness for His pleasure alone. So what does initiate that worship that is for God's pleasure alone, purposed only for Him? poured out totally and completely for him. It's God's mercy. It's God's mercy that produces our worship. God's mercy is the reason for all worship. The book of Romans begins with a problem, a problem that should alert all people to find a solution. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If those reading that passage might think to themselves, well, I think that there might be because I'm a good person and I follow certain laws, my good works are better than my bad works, that I could possibly escape this great net of God's wrath exposed against sin. Paul goes on to draw all people up in chapters 2 and chapter beginning of chapters 3 of Romans, all people up into the net of God's just wrath against sin. Romans 3.23, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, but there are some rules, there are some laws that I continuously follow that 
will at some point in time release me into an expression of justice before God? Paul answers, no, not the case. Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, whether that be the law or dictates of your own life, your own conscience, or the law that God has written down on stone, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is only the knowledge of sin. There's no escape from this wrath of God. There's no escape from this justice. Again, we're back in the situation that would drive us simply, if this is all we have, simply in defiance of God before his final judgment falls upon us. There's no way for us to approach this holy, sin-hating God by our own efforts and our own works. This is the problem that Paul presents for us at the beginning of his letter. But then Paul purposes to show us God's answer to that problem. And it's the whole point of the book of Romans. It's the whole point that's expressed all the way through the rest of Romans up until Romans chapter 12. God's wrath is against all manner of sin. All have sinned. All are guilty. All are under the holy wrath of God. But God has opened up a way for us to be made righteous through placing our faith in Christ alone who has bore that wrath on our place and has died as a propitiation for our sins and risen for our justification. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 begins what will be repeated in different ways in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and even over portions of chapter 6, 7, and 8 an expression of the answer that we find for this predicament, this grave problem. The heart of the argument is this. There you will see that the Lord Jesus is giving His life. He's shedding His blood in our place as the answer for and the satisfaction for God's justice. He redeems us from the penalty of breaking God's holy law. He turns God's wrath away from those who believe in Him by bearing that wrath upon Himself as our propitiation. He offers to us sinners His righteousness freely as a gift if we but believe upon Him. So that righteousness now becomes available to us through this work alone. Again, Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. Let me read it to you. For now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being revealed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no other way. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God set forth as a propitiation, the wrath receiver by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. If you read Romans chapter 3 and 4, you'll see that here is expressed before us the wonderful truths of justification by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you read Romans chapter 5, you'll see that the argument basically is an argument for peace with God, reconciliation with God through the one who became sin for us. If you read Romans 
6 through 8, you'll see the rising and growing expression of that salvation moving upon us in sanctification, where we, the old man, is set apart as dead to sin and we're given the new life and the resurrected power of Jesus Christ to live to His glory and His honor. In Romans 9 through 11, we see the, the sovereign mercy of God expressed bringing that salvation to us. And then Paul breaks forth in his praise and then Paul calls us to this response that we find in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is mercy, expounded, expostulated, and placed before us. But without receiving this gift of mercy described and argued throughout the book of Romans, there is only the prospect of justice and judgment for God. And the right response, if you reject this mercy, is found for us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. We read it in our scripture reading. Let me read it to you again. This explains what is left for a person who has rejected the cross of Christ and the gift of rightness or salvation with God, the mercy that comes to us through that gift. It says there, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What remains? but only a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Without faith in Christ, without faith in His dying in our place for the punishment of our sins and rising for our forgiveness, there is nothing to look forward to but certain burning, angering, devouring judgment from God. And just let me suggest to you again, this will not bring you to worship. Thanks for joining us for Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. For a copy of this broadcast, just call us at 208-331-4096. Join us next time. Until then, may God bless you.